Good morning again. If you would, please open your Bibles to Ruth chapter 3. We are right now, right in the midst of our series on Ruth, and uh, the series title is Expecting God's Redemption When You Least Expect It. Last week, we heard from Pastor Wilson, and he focused in on that idea, when you least expect it, expect it, that God's redemption comes to you in often very surprising ways, and that we should be prepared for that. Today, we're moving into Ruth 3, like I said. Ruth 3 is all about uh, continuing the story of redemption for Ruth and her family, her her mother-in-law, Naomi. So, we're going to read the text real quick, and then I'll pray and we'll dive in. Ruth chapter 3. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you? that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative, with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. When Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. For you are a, spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer. Yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight, and in the morning, if he will redeem you, good. Let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, Bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it and measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Thus far, the reading of God's word. All men are like grass, and all their glories are like the flowers of the field. Let us turn our attention to it. Let us pray. Father, we do thank you 
for this day and this time of worship. We thank you for the message that you have for us. Jesus, we thank you, Lord, that you are the word, the true word going out. And that as this sermon is preached, it's preached on your word. Lord, I ask that you empower my preaching. Let me not say anything incorrect. But instead, let me hold you up so that everyone might see you, myself included. Holy Spirit, we do ask that you prepare us for this time as we meditate on God's word and that you illumine our minds and our hearts to our Savior Jesus in the word. Amen. Now, to give you just a little bit of timeline to kind of anchor us in the story Let's go back and just recap where we've been briefly. So the book started out, and Naomi and her family, Elimelech, her husband, and her two sons, Mahlon and Kilion, they went into Moab because there was this famine in Bethlehem. And so they went into Moab, and once they're there, they live for a while, but then everyone starts to die. Elimelech dies, and then her two sons die. And... Naomi is left with her daughters-in-law. And Orpah goes back to her people, but Ruth clings to Naomi and says, my God will be your God. And so she, she travels back to Bethlehem with Naomi, limping along. And Naomi, when she gets back, the women of the town, they greet her. Is this not Naomi? And she says, no, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara. Because I went out full, and I returned empty. The Lord has dealt bitterly with me. And they arrived back in Bethlehem at the beginning of the harvest time. And at this time, it seems like either Naomi couldn't go out into the field and work, or maybe she was just too despondent. Who knows? But she doesn't go out. Ruth goes out. And he, she finds herself in Boaz's field. And there she gleans. And she experiences his kindness. He's very kind to her. He protects her. He guards her. He gives her good advice. Stay here. Glean in my field. Don't go anywhere else. Because if you go anywhere else, you might be abused. I don't want that for you. And so she's working there until the end of chapter 2. And we hear at the end of chapter 2 that that's the end of the harvest time. And this would have been about six weeks, maybe eight weeks long. That was about what the barley harvest was. And herein lies a problem, a problem that doesn't really surface too much in the text until you actually start thinking about it, but the harvest has stopped. Ruth had been gleaning all of the food that she and Naomi Naomi were eating, but now the harvest was done, and she would have to move on. She would have to move to another field, to another crop, The next crop would be wheat. You didn't grow wheat and barley field. And so she would have to be leaving Boaz's protection. And a question starts arising in Naomi's mind at this point. How will the Lord provide for us? Or even beyond that, will the Lord provide for us? And that's an understandable question, really, 
you know, after suffering like she did, experiencing the death of her husband, the death of her two sons, and then living in poverty as her daughter-in-law gleans grain that she can eat, it's a very pertinent question for Naomi. And I think at some level that question resonates with us. Maybe not the particular situation, but after suffering, after going through this life and all the trials and travails, we have that question in our minds, echoing in our hearts. Will the Lord provide for us? Will the Lord keep his promises to us? And how do I trust in his provision? How do I trust in his plan for us? How do I trust in his redemption? And that's the question that we're going to bring to the text today. How do we trust our Redeemer? So we're going to look at that in three parts today. We're going to look at Naomi's instruction to Ruth and see how that kind of informs us on how to answer the question. We're going to look at Ruth's actions, what Ruth does, and we're going to look at Boaz's response. So that's Naomi's instructions, Ruth's actions, Boaz's response. So how do we trust God? How do we trust God's provision for us? How do we trust his plan? Let's look at Naomi. Before we get into the specific instructions that she gives Ruth, let's, let's look a little bit at her motive. So she's come back to Bethlehem bitter, like we said. In fact, she named herself Mara. That's how she wanted people to refer to her, bitterness. And the thing is that in bitterness, being bitter, that tends to have us focus on ourselves. We look at ourselves. We look at our situation. We look at everything that's happened to us, and it's a very self-centered state of being. And it's really that self-centeredness that creates the bitterness. And that was who Naomi was at the beginning of the book. She was bitter. She was self-focused, self-centered. But now at the beginning of chapter 3, we actually see that she's made a little bit of a turn here. She may still be bitter, but she's not so focused on herself. No, she starts expressing concern for Ruth. She starts thinking about someone else. She starts thinking about her daughter-in-law. She realizes that in spite of the suffering that she's gone through, in spite of that, in, sp in spite of all the trials that she's had, that the Lord has provided her with a wonderful, faithful, honorable daughter-in-law. That the world, that the Lord has been providing for her constantly throughout all of this. And so she turns that corner and she starts to realize that she should really be providing for Ruth. And they're in this situation where Ruth has to go out and glean from the fields and she realizes now that that's untenable. That's not a long-term solution because she's going to have to switch to another field. She's going to have to go harvest somewhere else. And so Naomi looks at Ruth and says, Ruth, you have provided for me. You provided for me, but now I need to provide for you. And specifically, the best thing I can do to provide for you is to try to secure you a husband. And so she hatches this plan. Boaz is their kinsman redeemer. So they had this custom in 
Israel. And it actually goes back to a law in Deuteronomy that we'll read in a little bit. But the custom was that if a man had a wife and he died before she gave birth to a child, that his kinsmen would raise up children in his name. That was the custom. And he would take, uh, take the responsibility of providing for his brother's wife, for his kinsman's wife. And so she says, Boaz is this kinsman redeemer. He is the one who has the obligation. Let's go ask him. Let's go ask him to redeem you. And this is interesting in Naomi because, you know, this actually takes a little bit of faith. Ruth right now has a very good reputation. And Naomi is completely dependent upon Ruth and what she brings to the table, literally what she brings to the table. And yet, if they go to Boaz and things go badly, then she may not have that good reputation. She may find it hard to glean in other fields. She may be kicked out of Boaz's good graces. If they jump the gun and offend Boaz, things get even worse. Because he's a well-respected person in the community, and if he has taken offense to them, then everyone will. And so she goes out with her plan, and she outlines what this is. She's stepping out in faith, even though it's risky. And she says this, verse 2 through 5. She says, Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash therefore and anoint yourself and put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down. And he will tell you what to do. And she replies, All that you say I will do. And so her first, her first little tidbit is that Boaz is at the threshing floor. Now, there's a lot of cultural stuff that goes into this, and we don't really get it because we're not farmers and we're not Israelites and we're not super involved in the Old Testament. But usually what would happen at the end of a harvest, they would thresh out all the grain, and then the person who owned the field, who owned all that grain that had just been threshed out, would have a party a really big party. It would be a feast. And he would throw the feast for all of his workers, celebrating the good harvest that has come in. And so that's what's happening. Boaz is throwing a party. And it's a party that Ruth is probably invited to. Because even though she is not specifically one of his workers, we do know that he's been very kind to her this entire time. And it seems... Odd that he would exclude her from it. And then she's told to wash, to anoint herself. This would probably be with like a perfumed oil. And put on the cloak. Well, that word cloak is, can actually be translated several ways in Hebrew. It can be translated as cloak. It can also uh, have something like raiment. Think of Sunday best. Put on your Sunday best. Go take a shower. Go put on some perfume and put on your Sunday best. And then go down 
to the threshing floor, but don't make yourself known. Now, that probably means more like don't actually approach him then. Don't approach him during the party. Don't make yourself known to him. Don't make your intentions known to him. But instead, lie down at his feet. We'll get to that later. That's a weird command. But, and I realize that, but it does make sense, and we'll get to it when we start talking about Ruth. And all of this is very risky. You know, she's not having Ruth do anything immoral here. Nothing immoral is implied here. But it could blow back at them. You know, all it takes is somebody coming into the threshing area, the threshing floor, during the night and tripping over her. And then all of a sudden, even though she's done nothing immoral, she's scandalized. And so is Boaz. So, Naomi is realizing that the Lord has actually been providing for her. He's been providing for her through the ministrations of Ruth to, to her, gleaning in the field and carrying back to the table. She's also been provided for by Boaz himself. And that gives her courage. Courage as she witnesses what the Lord has done in her life. Courage to act in faith. And trust that the Lord will continue to provide. Even though things could go horribly wrong, she believes this is the right course of action. And it is, scripturally. This is the right course of action. And this isn't blind faith that she exhibits. This is trust that's built on how the Lord has worked with her. It's trust in how the Lord has behaved. Christians often get accused of having blind faith, trusting for no reason. But that that isn't how faith is ever talked about in the Bible. Faith is not talked about as blind faith. It's based on something, and it's based on the character of God. It's based on what he's done. It's based on his promises. That is what faith is based on. It's never blind. It's always informed. And that is a great thing. And Naomi has realized that. So Ruth here, she receives Naomi's instructions. And being the obedient daughter-in-law, she she immediately moves to obey. And the interesting thing here is that, you know, Naomi had turned that corner. And now she was thinking not about herself so much, though a little bit about herself, Selfishness is inevitable. It's endemic to the human condition. So we can't eliminate that. But she's thinking primarily of Ruth. And Ruth here, for her part, she's thinking of Naomi. She also sees the problem. She's under Boaz's good graces, which means that Naomi's livelihood is directly tied to how successful Ruth is. She's thinking about her mother-in-law. She's thinking about how much she loves her. So let's read again, verse 6 through 9. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled. And turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, Who are you? She answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. 
So she went to the celebration. She went to the celebration and then she waited. She waited for an opportune time. He has had a good meal. He's had a couple of glasses of wine. His heart is merry. He's not drunk, but he is filled with joy because he's had a great harvest, thrown a great party, and now he goes to sleep. And she goes, she uncovers his feet, and she lays at his feet. And we might ask ourselves, why his feet? And why uncover them? You know, there have been many insinuations throughout the years that this might be some sort of Hebrew euphemism, that she might be actually doing something naughty. And I would, I would highly encourage you not to believe that because it doesn't make any sense of the story. Constantly, Ruth in the story is praised for her faithfulness. And in fact, when Boaz actually wakes up and talks to her, he praises her again for her faithfulness. And he is a good, honorable, God-fearing man. And so it would be completely out of character for that to be the interpretation, some sort of Hebrew euphemism for sex. No. Theories abound as to why, you know, why does she uncover his feet? Why does she lay at his feet? Why not wake him up? Well, that's actually pretty easy. You know, if you're asleep in the middle of the dark and you're alone and you come and get woken up by a woman, that probably is not someone who has good intentions for you. Not in this day and age. That would have greatly offended him. Why not sleep by his side? Because that would be presumptuous. That's where his wife would sleep. And she's not his wife. And so, no, she, she sleeps at his feet, and this is the posture of a servant. She's not presumptuous. Not presumptuous at all. This is the same way that she actually describes herself back in chapter 2, that she is his servant. And so he wakes up, and she makes her request. He wakes up startled. Who can blame him? The Hebrew is actually interesting here because whenever it says startled, that's what we translate it as. But it, it means something more like earthquake or shudder or something like that. That's, that's more of what it means. It's more of just, oh, there's somebody there at my feet. No, he is alarmed. Something has happened and he doesn't know what it is. And he says, who are you? And she answers very directly. I'm Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over me. Now, this is an image of care and protection. And, you know, this is an image that we actually still have in our day and age. I was actually on uh, YouTube the other day, wasting time. Um, you know, that's what you do on YouTube. And I stumbled across this video of a little chicken that had decided that it was going to become the protector of a little tiny puppy, like a newborn puppy. And what did the chicken do? It took its wing, spread it over it, cuddled it close to keep it warm. That's still the image of spreading your wings over somebody. It's care and protection. It's also, they think, an idiom for marriage here because of the marriage customs of the day. That part of sharing a cloak, part of sharing which 
wings can also be translated as cloak or skirt, many other things. But part of that is symbolizing sharing a marriage bed. And we now realize what Naomi planned and why she planned it this way. And if we go back and we read in Deuteronomy, this is Deuteronomy chapter 25, this will kind of shed some light on why she's doing all these things, all these mysterious things that we have no idea about. Deuteronomy 25, starting in verse 5, says, If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. And if the man does not wish to take his brother's wife, then his brother's wife shall go up to the gate to the elders and say, my husband's brother refuses to perpetuate his brother's name. Will he not perform the duty of a husband to me? Then the elders of his city shall call him and speak to him. And if he persists, saying, I do not wish to take her, then his brother's wife shall go up to him in the presence of the elders and pull his sandals off his feet and spit in his face. And she shall answer and say, so shall it be done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. And the name of his house shall be called in Israel the house of him who had his sandal pulled off. It's a very weird custom. It, but it does give us some insight for a lot of what's happening here. Why in the world would she go at night? Why at night? Because she's sparing him any shame. In fact, what she's instructed to do, Naomi knows her Bible, evidently, what she's instructed to do is to go to the elders because Boaz has been sitting here for eight weeks almost and he hasn't taken on his obligation. This is his obligation. And she's supposed to go to the elders and have the elders confront him about it. But instead, Naomi says, no, let's go to him in private where nobody can see, where he won't be shamed, and let's remind him of his obligation. It's to spare him shame. Why lay at his feet? We already talked about it being the posture of a servant, but his feet are also uncovered. And that reminds us of that passage in Deuteronomy 25, 9, where the sandals are ripped off the person's feet. And that's, a, that's like a public shaming and a punishment. And by uncovering his feet, she is reminding him not only of his obligation, but of maybe the consequences of not fulfilling it. And so, she's gently calling him to task. That's what Naomi has set her out to do. Now, Ruth probably doesn't understand any of this because she didn't grow up in Israel. She doesn't really know the law. She's just starting to get to know Yahweh. She's just starting to follow our God a new believer, and yet, this is what she's called to do, to call him to task. And so again, this is risky, this could blow back, it could end up shaming him. He could take grave offense to this, it could be misinterpreted, it could tarnish her reputation. 
which would make her undesirable to Boaz and to anyone else. But she acts in faith. She has faith in Naomi, faith in Naomi to actually lead her well. She has faith that Boaz is and was an honorable man to her. And she has faith in this new God that she is worshiping, faith in Yahweh, this God that she is just beginning to know, who has been providing for her. And so Ruth makes her request, and how does Boaz respond? Heck no! No, of course he doesn't say that. No. He's overwhelmed that she would actually ask him. Let's look at verse 10 and 11. He says, And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know you are a worthy woman. And so he's overwhelmed that she would actually ask him. And he commends her for her kindness. Not just her kindness to him, by the way. That is really not his primary concern. As part of it, sure, he is very flattered. But it's her kindness to Naomi. In fact, when he's first talking to her in the field dialoguing with her, and she asks, why, why are you being so kind to me? That's what he says. He says, I'm being kind to you because you are being kind to Naomi. May the Lord bless you because of that. And he is the one, he is allowing the Lord to bless Ruth through him. And so he's overwhelmed that she would have this kindness to her mother-in-law. And it's kindness that puts Naomi first. Ruth, by all rights, should have a husband her own age. Maybe she even seeks one out that's a little bit more wealthy than Boaz. Yet she doesn't do that. She knows Boaz is a good man who will take care of Naomi, take care of her. And so she approaches him in that way. And he is astounded with her kindness. And then he commends her virtue, which again dispels any notion that anything untoward was going on here. Everything was on the up and up. And then he tells her of this other redeemer. That's in verse 12. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. And this explains actually why he hadn't acted yet. He knew the law. He knew what his obligations were. He knew <clears throat> everything about that. And yet, it wasn't his right to actually act as that redeemer for them. It wasn't his right or obligation to do so. In fact, there was somebody else, some other man that had that right, had that obligation, that wasn't fulfilling his role. And yet he is so moved by love and compassion that he promises her redemption. He promises to take care of her, to provide for her, to actually redeem her in some way. Either by having this guy do it or by doing it himself, he would make sure Ruth and Naomi were provided for. He has been her protector and her provider, and he will continue to do so. 
And so he has her stay until morning. That's, again, probably an act of protection because it's dangerous to go about in the dark. And at first light, he again moves in protection of her to protect her from any scandal that might come. And then, even though he's not obligated to Ruth, he he has no responsibility. He provides this big dowry for her. And why does he do it? Why does he do it? Is he just magnanimous? Well, that's part of it. That's part of it. But he's moved to compassion because of Naomi. He wants Naomi to know, beyond a shadow of a doubt, I will make sure that you are taken care of. You have nothing to fear. And he says this interesting thing that we pick up on right at the end of the chapter. Ruth relays it to us. Naomi asks why she's carrying all this grain. And so Ruth answers her, these six measures of barley, which would have been about 80 pounds. This was a great load of barley. You know, I don't know how much bread that would make, but probably a lot. Um, Just guessing. And so it says, the six measure of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. Now, back at the beginning of the sermon and the beginning of the text, we talked about how uh, Naomi had gone into Moab. And when she came back, she was empty. And that's the same word that's used here, empty. We translate it empty-handed. But the author is telling us something different. You were empty when you came back. I'm going to make sure that you're full. And the Lord is using me to do it. That's why. And as just a, a quick aside here, there's this little interesting translation thing that happens uh, when Ruth shows back up at the house and talks to Naomi. And Naomi says... How did you fare, my daughter? But that's not actually what Naomi says. If you go to the Hebrew, she says, who are you? Who are you? Which is kind of a profound statement. A lot of of commentators have been really confused on this, which is why it's translated the way it is in, in your Bible. And yet, it is, who are you? It's as if Naomi, when faced with Ruth, knowing that she's completed her task, is just astounded at who her daughter-in-law is. Who are you? And so, because he trusts the Lord, and he trusts the Lord's word, he's actually willing willing to take on this responsibility that he doesn't have. He's showing that he's willing to be that redeemer, that protector, that provider. Whatever the cost to him, he trusts that the Lord brought Ruth and Naomi to him. He trusts that the Lord is true when he testifies as to what his responsibility might be. And he trusts the Lord to provide in this. Now, I hear the, the gears turning here. 
you know, Jason, I see how Naomi and Ruth and Boaz, they all trusted the Lord here, but how does that help me? How do I trust in his provision? How do I trust in his plan? Life often just seems so hard. There's so many trials. So much hardship that I have to go through. How can I trust him? How do I see Jesus here in this passage? Because that's really what I need. I need to see Jesus. And the first answer to that is that you need to look and see how Jesus has already provided for you. He has already provided for you. Truly, indeed, you, like Naomi, were Mara, stuck in your sins, condemned, bitter, self-centered, self-focused, truly emptied. And yet, in spite of that, Jesus came to you. And he came to you as who? As the new and better Ruth as the one who provides for you every step of the way. If you are Mara, he is the new and better Ruth providing for you. More than that, he's given himself over to the cross for our sin. He doesn't just leave us in our sin and provide for us. No, instead, as the new and better Boaz, he is willing and able to make any sacrifice, whatever the cost, whatever the cost to him, as our redeemer he's willing to do that to redeem us and it's more than that he became sin for us and was abandoned by the father that we might have his righteousness boaz loved and accepted ruth whenever she made her proposal here because of her virtue that was the main thing that was driving him but christ accepts us in spite of our sinfulness in spite of our depravity in spite of anything that might commend him to us. He accepts us because he loves us. And just as Naomi and Ruth were made part of Boaz's family in this, so we too are made part of Christ's family. We are part of Christ's family, inseparably for all eternity. And so we look and we see what he has done for us, what he has done in us. And we can't help but see, we can't help but see him. And when we see him, we can't help but respond. It is inevitable. That's what it means that God is renewing your heart. That as you see him, you respond. That he has made you alive again and able to respond. And I, I hear that over. Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. Because this is hard. This is a hard thing. We know all of this. We know how Jesus redeemed us. We're very familiar with that. But still, sometimes trust is just hard. It's hard to actually look out and trust that God has everything in control, that his plan reaches over every facet of my life and that he is bringing good out of it. It's hard to trust that. And
And yet, that's exactly what we're called to do. And we're enabled to do it because we have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. And when trust is hard, what do we do? What do we do? We resort to the means of grace. We talk about this a lot. God has given us means of grace, means to experience his grace for us. First and foremost, it's worship. Worship is the primary means of grace. Hearing his word preached, singing songs to him, celebrating him, giving adulation to him, that builds us up. It focuses us on him and takes our focus off of ourselves so that we see Jesus truly and purely. We also have prayer. We can ask, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Lord, I know, I know what your word says. I need your help to trust it. We have the sacraments. We'll be taking the Lord's Supper here in just a few minutes. The Lord's Supper is an amazing thing. It is food and nourishment for our soul. It is a direct way that God uses to nourish our faith and build us up in him. And we have his word. His word that testifies to us who he is, what he's done. We can remind ourselves of God's faithful, his faithfulness, his promises that he's made to us. He has made promises to you that he will never again leave or forsake you, that you are his, you are bound to him. You are inseparable because of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And you have been bound to your great Savior. His promise is to never leave you or forsake you. And if he never leaves you or forsakes you, then he is always there for your provision, always there for your protection. And nothing will ever affect you that doesn't go through the nail-scarred hands of Jesus. Let us pray. Lord, we freely admit that though you are the Redeemer, though you are the Magnificent One, though you are the Honorable, Faithful One, we admit that we do not always think that way. In fact, Lord, we confess that often we think that you are as, as faithless as we are. Praise you, Lord, that that is not true, and that has never been true. Lord, as, as we turn as we turn from the sermon to the sacraments, we do ask that you be with us, that you use the sacraments to build up our faith. Use the sacraments to cement in our hearts the fact that you are faithful and true and you keep your promises. Lord, let us live in light of that truth. Let us trust our great Redeemer and Savior, Jesus. Amen.